Why don't we go ahead and just open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Our great God, we praise you this morning. You are worthy of our praise. We praise you, Father, for your Son and Spirit. We thank you and praise you for Jesus, his, his saving work on our behalf. We think of his perfect human life, um, which he lived for, as our representative in Adam, as an, a second Adam, so that we could be righteous in him. We thank you for his obedience unto death so that he offered himself up as a sacrifice once for all to accomplish an eternal redemption and that our sins are now paid in full and there's no more need for any sacrifice. We thank you for his resurrection, that he has been raised for our justification, that the vindication that he has having been raised from the dead and seated at your right hand, is also ours, that we are vindicated in him. And we, Father, thank you that we now are united to him, that our life is hid with Christ, and that we have a great hope, a hope that when he returns, we will not perish in the judgment, but enter his eternal kingdom and experience the joys of, of the new creation, freed from sin and all its effects. Even as we are here this morning with burdens, burdens of sin, burdens of sorrow, uh, our own corruptions, as well as the sorrows of living in a fallen world, we thank you that Christ has defeated in a definitive way um, sin and death and the devil, and that It is only a matter of time before he will bring that victory to its climactic finish. And we help us to remember that, to walk in faith and hope and in love. And we pray that you would even use our time today, worshiping together, beginning now in this class, to stir up our hearts with fresh faith and trust in Christ, fresh hope in the coming glory and fresh love for him and for one another and that it would be a sweet time of fellowship today that would be both honoring to you and also beneficial to our souls and uh, we pray for this class this morning as we study the book of numbers that you would open up this book to us cause our hearts to understand it and to really benefit from the teaching of this book and we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit that he would illuminate our hearts and fill us, let the word, that he would cause the word to dwell richly within us and nourish our souls with it. So please bless our time this morning. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. We're continuing our study of the Old Testament. You can see where we're headed in this class. Um, Remember that the prophets will be covered in a separate class. So this is part one of the Old Testament. And remember, this is just an overview. So this is like the 50,000 foot view of the Old Testament. But that's okay. It will help us understand it better, even as we read through it. Just a few introductory items. One, Numbers is really part four of a big book. Part four of the Pentateuch. Remember, the word Pentateuch just means, what does it mean? Five books. Uh... This is part four. This is the fourth book in the Pentateuch. And really, 
you can see how it fits into the larger storyline of the Pentateuch. The, the previous book, Leviticus, records commands that the Lord gave to Israel at Mount Sinai while they were camped at Mount Sinai. And Numbers picks up the story after that. So Israel is still at Mount Sinai when Numbers begins. And in fact, as I mentioned about Leviticus, so also with Numbers, the book starts in Hebrew with the word and. So there's clearly a transition. It starts with a transition implying that it's just picking up with the previous where the previous book left off. And really where Numbers is going to take us is going to describe the journey of Israel from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab just across the Jordan River from Canaan. And the plains of Moab is where the book of Deuteronomy was delivered by Moses. Okay, so this is the filling that gap between Mount Sinai and the plains of Moab. The Hebrew title, if you were to re- be having a Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used, for instance, remember I talked about um, the Torah and the Ketuvim and the Nevaim, the threefold uh, structure of the Hebrew Bible. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, if you turn to what we call the book of Numbers, the title would be In the Wilderness, which is based upon, they basically took the title, the first few words of the book, and they made that the title of the Hebrew books in the Pentateuch. Uh, And that's the opening line in Hebrew of this book. And it makes sense. It really captures this book, In the Wilderness. A couple of other things, just reminding you that this is still affirming this book will affirm continue to affirm that the content of the book is words from God delivered through the prophet Moses and so the book is largely ascribed to Moses that he's the author and you can see this if you turn in fact just turn numbers 1 so that we're in the right place as we start going through this you can see in numbers 1 verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai And then you get down to the end, saying, and then it gives you words. So, again, words from God through Moses, his his great prophet. Then you go to chapter 2, you see the same thing. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, and then you have words. (coughs) Chapter 3, verse 5, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. So, this is the theme throughout the book. This is material ascribed to Moses in that it's from God ultimately, but delivered through Moses as his prophet. So mosaic authorship still affirmed. Although, it is true that some material in the book seems to have been um, added after Moses. I I talked about how this is true of the book of Deuteronomy, right? The last chapter talks about Moses' death. Well, obviously Moses didn't write that. Something added later on. And it's sometimes hard to tell when there is a a post-Moses edition, but... This is a kind of a funny one. Many people have pointed to Numbers 12.3 as something that probably was a little editorial edition after Moses. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So of course Moses could have written that, but it almost would seem to contradict the very thing he's claiming, right? But So it's likely that there were perhaps small additions, you know, clarifications, and little portions that may have been added later on. 
Um, another example would be Numbers 32, where it talks about, in verses 34 through 42, it talks about the Transjordan tribes, the two and a half tribes that inherited land on the west side of the, on the east side of the Jordan. And it goes on in the passage to talk beyond the times of Moses to cities that they built in that part in their territory. Well, that, that would have happened right after the conquest, right? That would have been something that Moses couldn't have written because he wasn't alive when those cities were built. So while we say mosaic authorship, we recognize that there are some additions. And then we could also recognize that there's actually sources that Moses used that were existing before him. Probably the classic one in Numbers is in Numbers 21, verse 14. It says, Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. And then it quotes a little poem or song. Okay, well that that shows you that not everything in the book is something that Moses is completely you know, receiving from the Lord in that moment. He's, he's also drawing upon some sources from before, that previously existed. And you can imagine how this was probably true throughout the Pentateuch. For instance, all the genealogies in the book of Genesis probably existed before Moses and had been passed down over the years, right? In Abraham, through Abraham's descendants, so that he probably used pre-existing lists of all of the descendants from of Adam, for instance, and of Cain and of Seth. So there were pre-existing documents that he's drawing upon as well. Okay, so that's just a few introductory matters. Any questions on that before we move forward? Okay. Now, when you get to numbers, you do notice that there is a sort of strange literary style. Um, what I mean is, first of all, Half the book is story, narrative. And the narrative that this, this narrative provides the sort of overarching structure of the book, right? But inserted into the narrative is a wide variety of other material, right? So this is the type of stuff that you see in the book of Numbers. Census reports, chapters 1 and 26, genealogies, short genealogies, uh, legal code, poetry, songs. I just showed you one that was quoted from the book of the Wars of the Lord. Oracles, like Balaam's oracles. Travelogue, which is actually a technical sort of genre of literature. A travelogue was a list of all the places that you stopped along a journey, right? And it would literally has a little format, you know, um, that that you see repeated again and again. And then... Boundary descriptions of a land, so territory descriptions, almost like a, a written deed. So you see all of these things inserted into the narrative of numbers at various points, so that when you're reading through numbers, it can appear very random, right? So actually, if you would turn to Numbers chapter 4, I just want to show you, give you a taste of what this is like. Numbers 4, you have, if you're, if you're reading in... Yeah, if you're reading in Numbers 4, you have, first of all, a, a list of the duties of the various Levite clans, right? And then you go to the next chapter, and you have uh, laws about unclean people, laws about what to do when a person sins, making restitution, 
uh, a, a law, a legal code laying out essentially a case law about what to do if a woman is accused by her husband of adultery. And then you have, in chapter 6, Nazarite vow. Uh, laws regarding Nazarite. You remember, famously, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. So was Samson, right? And then you go back to um, chapter 7. You, you pick up the narrative again, right? And, and this is how it is throughout the book. You're reading a story, and then all of a sudden you're reading a law, and then you're reading, you know, some other, you know, some other kind of material, and it seems jumbled together, like someone took a bunch of different stuff and, and read, put it into a big pot, shrug it up, and then dumped it out, and that's what you get in numbers, right? But actually, what I want to try to show you is that the order of things is not actually random, it's very purposeful, that the arrangement of the material, though it appears random, when you're reading through it, if you stop and you think about why would the author put that there? What does that have to do with the broader argument that he's making? And I think you'll see that he's very purposeful. Uh, Moses is very purposeful in the arrangement of the material in the book. Okay? So that's a, something about the strange literary style. It's one of the things that when you're reading numbers, your head just kind of goes... What is this book about? I just got to power through this, you know. But hopefully, when we get done with this class, you'll have a better sense of why this material is arranged the way it is, and and you'll be able to profit from it better. Okay, so let's talk about the purpose of numbers. Why was it written? Well, obviously, in one sense, um, numbers fills a gap in the storyline of the Pentateuch. It explains to the Israelites... It recounts for the Israelites and for subsequent generations how Israel got from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab. Okay, so it, it fills a gap in, a, in the story. But also, it tells this story in a way that emphasizes certain things. Okay, so when you read the book of Numbers, you're not just reading a a bare historical account, but you're reading a historical account that's emphasizing certain things. This is what I talked about when we when we come to the narrative, the history books of Scripture. They're not like the history books that you read today, where the author is trying to be comprehensive. You know, they try to read all the available sources and objective. You know, they don't want their own biases to be reflected in the history. That's not biblical history. Biblical history is people who want you to grasp certain things about God and salvation and Christ if you're in the New Testament or Old Testament characters they're writing a historical narrative that is theological in its purpose and it's selective and that's what you see this story in Numbers though what it's doing is telling you how Israel got from Sinai to the plains of Moab so that you get to the book of Deuteronomy it's telling the story in a way that emphasizes certain things. And I want to just highlight two things in particular. One, it emphasizes the rebelliousness of Israel. So there are repeated accounts of them grumbling. Multiple rebellions against God. Multiple divine judgments against the people for those rebellions. So that the first generation that came out of Egypt at the Exodus ends up perishing in the wilderness. And don't enter the promised land, right? So that's one thing. It's just emphasizing the rebelliousness of Israel. 
And then second, in contrast to that, it's emphasizing the faithfulness of God to a rebellious people, right? So God repeatedly brings these divine judgments against Israel, but then repeatedly relents from his judgment and doesn't completely destroy the people. He repeatedly provides atonement through the priests, right? He he stays with Israel. You remember the sort of the fact that after some of these rebellions, going back into the book of Exodus even, he says, I can't go with this people. If I do, I'm going to end up consuming them along the way. But what we say, see in the book of Numbers is that he stays with them. You know, Moses had appealed to God to do this, and now in Numbers we see that he does it. He follows through, he stays with the people all the way through this wilderness journey. And that he protects and preserves the nation. And we'll see how that plays out. So, Israel's rebelliousness, God's faithfulness uh, to his promises uh, to a rebellious people. Okay, you can see how those two themes are really themes reflected in the whole Bible, aren't they? Right? <laughs> but they come out as a, a key point of emphasis in the book of Numbers. And also, one of the things that you see in Numbers is that we talked about the whole Pentateuch being covenant documents, right? These were docu- covenant documents given to the nation of Israel that explained the history of their relationship with God, laid out the stipulations of the covenant, even put it in writing so that they have a, the book of the covenant, and then lays out blessings and curses for disobedience or for obedience and disobedience. Well, one of the things that Numbers does is it adds to what has already been delivered in Exodus and Leviticus. It adds additional laws, right? That I'm um, sort of like, you know, in, in our in our laws today, we have uh, a base that that was established in the legal code, whether in a state or in at the federal level, and then laws are added to that, right? And oftentimes, why are laws added? Address issues that come up. Issues that come up, right? So you see some some laws that are just added ceremonial code, but you also see many sort of case laws. This situation came up, what do we do about it? And and it adds additional laws adjudicating these matters, right? So that's another purpose of this, is we do have snippets of additional law being added to the covenant documents that lay out the terms of Israel's relationship with God. Now, these are the chapters in which you see that, and this is a little selection of the laws that are added. Okay, so we see here laws about unclean people, confession and restitution, adultery, the Nazarite vow, laws about sacrifices, unintentional versus intentional sins, Sabbath breaking, tassels on garments, right? Laws about the duties of priests and Levites and laws about ceremonial purification when you became unclean, laws about various offerings and vows, laws about the cities of refuge, and the cities for the Levites. So this is just a sampling of, well, this is, I think, actually a pretty comprehensive list of the categories of laws that were added in the book of Numbers that were interspersed with in, into the narrative of Numbers. Okay, so that's why the book of Numbers was written, at least in its immediate sense, for the nation of Israel. 
Okay, so now what I want to do is I want to walk through the book with you. So this would be a good time to go back to Numbers 1 and, we're, and, and just flip through the pages with me as we walk along, look at your headings, take a glance at the text, and follow along as we walk through the book. And we're going to start in the first section, Numbers 1 through 10. In this entire section of the book, Israel is still at Mount Sinai. And what they're doing is they're preparing to depart from Mount Sinai and to begin their journey through the wilderness to Canaan. So everything in this section is falls into this camp. It's, it's um, preparations for their wilderness journey to Canaan, which, by the way, would have typically been about not a very long journey, right? 11 days. What, 11 days? Okay, so if they would have just gone straight through, they would have made it there in 11 days, or perhaps if they went slower, a couple weeks. It wasn't a long, a long distance. But how long did it end up taking them to get there, right? 40 years. 40 years. So while it wouldn't have seemed a big deal, this journey, Yet it turns out that these preparations for the wilderness journey are very important. Okay, now, let's look at this. First, in chapter 1, what you see is a census taken. A counting, but not a counting of every Israelite, but a counting of Israelites who were of fighting age. They were, they were, able, they were old enough to serve in the military. You say, okay, that's kind of strange. Okay, so I'm going to lay out what we have in each of the chapters. And then at the end, these arrows are going to show you why I, what the purpose of each of these sections is in the book. And this is where I'm going to try to help you see why this jumble of material is arranged the way it is. Okay, so you have a census of fighting men in chapter 1. Uh, in chapters 2 through 4, you have another census, by the way. You know, this is part of why the book is called Numbers, Numbers right? In, the, in the, um, the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So you have a census of Levites uh, and a description of their duties. So here, census of fighting men, now census of Levites. Their duties are going to surround the tabernacle. Who's going to carry which part of the tabernacle? And how does it, the process of breaking down the tabernacle and setting it back up again, how does that all work, right? And this is serious business, because the text will even tell you that if you do it wrong, you could die, right? <laughs> so, fighting men, Levites and their duties. And then you have laws about ceremonial uncleanness. What do you do when a person becomes unclean in the camp? You laws about dealing with sin, making restitution for wrongs done, laws about what you might call moral uncleanness. When someone is charged with adultery, how do you determine whether they are guilty or not? And what do you do about it? There's like a, a case law. And then you have laws about Nazarite vows. And by the way, from what you know about the Nazarite vow, what was the purpose of a Nazarite vow? Does anyone know? From reading about Samson, reading about John the Baptist. You're set apart for God. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like an extra degree of devotion, right? If you, if you want to be, if you want to live your life in a way that is devoted to God at a different level, and you're a lay person, right? You're not a Levite, 
then this is, you can take a Nazarite vow. So, all, see, notice all of these have to do with holiness, right? Uncleanness, restitution for sin, adultery, Nazarite vows, okay? Devotion to God and holiness in the camp. And then you have a process, a solemn process of dedicating the tabernacle so that it's ready for God to indwell it. And then in these chapters, God, but it's a preparation for God indwelling the tabernacle. And then the Levites have to go through a process of cleansing for so that they're ready to serve in the presence of God at the tabernacle. Next, in chapter 9, 1 through 14, you have the second Passover celebrated. Why do I say the second Passover? First one was in Egypt. Right, well, they're delivered out of Egypt. Passover number one would have been the following year, right? This is Passover number two, right? So, they, this is the, you see the second Passover celebrated. And by the way, what, what is that going to do for them? What is that pointing them back to? Freedom from Egypt. Right. It's reminding them of God's redemptive work in their life. Just like when we take the Lord's Supper, right? And then you have this, they've prepared the tabernacle for habitation, and then the glory cloud of the Lord goes and fills the tabernacle. Sign that God has taken up residence in the midst of his people. And then you have instructions about signal trumpets. Okay, now, when you read that, what you realize is that you know, if you have any of you guys ever, you know, read or studied the history of the Civil War, if you have, you know that one of the big challenges that they faced was getting the army to actually do something all at the same time because they didn't have like radios, they didn't have so you needed some kind of signals, and oftentimes that would make the difference in a battle, you know, just one part starting and the other part not starting at the same time and well, Israel was a large nation, you know, millions of people and how were they going to know when to depart and when not to depart? Well, there would be a, first of all, God's glory cloud would lift from the tabernacle. And that was the sign that they were to set out. And when the glory cloud descended again, they were to set up camp. But in order to signal to the people various things that they were to do, they had these trumpets. And the trumpets were the signal to, you know, certain blows on the trumpet would signal certain things, Right. So this is, again, all about preparation for them to depart so that they could, and and establishing a pattern for them to know when to do certain things as they're moving through the desert. Okay, so what is all this about? Well, let me point out three things. First, when you have this census of the fighting men in Israel, and this is confirmed when they actually do depart, the language that Moses uses is the language of a sort of military march. The fighting man census points to the idea that Israel is departing from Mount Sinai as a military company marching off to war. War where? War in the land of Canaan, right? It's anticipating the conquest. When you get to this section, all of this material really emphasizes that yes, Israel is an army, but it is a holy army. It's an army that needed consecration and needed to maintain holiness, both moral and ceremonial purity. Why? Because the Lord was dwelling among them, right? So they, you see them preparing for his presence to inhabit the tabernacle and the 
Levites preparing to serve in his presence. So, yes, there's emphasis upon Israel as a, a fighting nation, but the greater emphasis is placed upon the fact that they are a holy nation, marching off to holy war, because God dwells in their midst. And then, here you have an emphasis upon the fact that the Lord, who had redeemed them out of Israel, redeemed them out of Egypt, was going to go with them, and indeed was going to lead the way. So as the army went out, who would be at its head? Who would determine when they stopped and when they went, right? It was the Lord. So this is the picture being painted. It's all about preparing them to depart, but it tells it in a certain way to emphasize that they are an army marching off to war, but they are a holy army. They are the army of the Lord, and the Lord dwells in their midst, and the Lord will lead them out to battle. So you see, this is like the theological point being made here. Now, the second section, there's going to be two Two slides for this, for 11 through 20, but we'll work through the first part of it here. This section is all about, you know, they they march out, and it's like, immediately they stumble, right? I mean, this is all about the various rebellions of this Exodus generation, and how they end up perishing in the wilderness, outside the promised land. They march off as an army to conquer the Canaanites, with the Lord dwelling in their midst, And that generation of Israelites never makes it. And this tells the story. So first you have Israel marching forth from Canaan. In fact, I want you to, let's read together Numbers chapter 10. We'll read verses 33 through 36. Numbers 10, 33 through 36. And and see if you can feel the, the ethos of this text, okay? So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, wherever they went out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel a military march with the Lord as captain at its head, and they're marching out to victory, right? And then, 11 verse 1, what does it say? And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, right? This is going to be the theme of this section of Israel, right? Or of Israel's history. We're still grumbling today. Still, still, Still grumbling today. So there's the grumbling about at Taberah, it just says about their misfortunes. You know, they're three days into the desert. You can imagine. If you were on a desert journey, before you start, you know, picking up stones to throw, this is a harsh wilderness. Like, you can understand what they were grumbling about. It doesn't make sense when you realize where they've come from and where they're headed and who's with them, but just at a human level, they're grumbling about the lack of water and the heat and the barrenness of the landscape and where they're going to get their next meal, etc., And it says, fire breaks out in the camp, right? Rebellion, judgment, and then God relents. And then in verse 4, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at, right? 
Now remember, how long is it going to take them to get there if they just won't grumble? Not very long, right? Seven days. But you see, what's happening is their corruption is coming out. Their unbelief, their distrust in the Lord. So they grumble about the manna. And then God gives them, He says, you want meat to eat? I'll give you meat to eat. And He brings quail enough for the whole nation. Millions of people, they eat. But as they're eating, as it says, as the meat is between their teeth, He strikes them with a plague, with judgment, right? So it becomes a place called Kibrath Hatava, meaning graves of craving. Graves of craving. Then, you have another. Except this time, it is into the leadership of Israel. You have in chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron grumbling against Moses. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And as you read through, you realize it's more than about the Cushite woman. You know, that's just the thing they're holding against him. It had never been a problem before. But they're jealous of Aaron. Why, why is he the one that God speaks to? You know, we are holy as well. And God strikes Miriam with leprosy, right? And upholds the leadership of Moses. So more grumbling. This time it's moving into the leadership of Israel. Then you have in... Chapters 13 and 14, the climactic event of rebellion. They get to Kadesh. They get to the verge of the promised land. They are poised to enter the promised land. And what happens? Moses sends out the 12 spies. Two of them come back with a good report, but 10 with a bad report. You won't believe it. It's a good land, yes, but there's giants in the land. The Nephilim are in the land. They have strong fortresses. The people are bigger than us. We'll never be able to do it. We're going to die. And the people decide they were better off in Egypt. The Lord has led them out into the wilderness to die. So they say, we're going to stone Moses and Aaron. We're going to go back to Egypt. And the Lord appears to them you know, in the cloud. And he says to Moses and Aaron, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to start over with you and make a new people. And Moses and Aaron fall before the Lord and they cry out to him for mercy. Right? And he says, fine, I won't destroy the people. But not a single person in this generation is going to enter the land. They will all perish. And you're to wander for 40 years until they all die out. Except, he says, for Caleb and Joshua. So this is the sort of climactic event of rebellion in the book, which leads to 40 years in the desert and that entire generation perishing outside of the promised land. So you have rebellion, 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 right? A climactic rebellion. And then I want you to notice this. Look at chapter 15. This is one of those awkward, you know, grinding clutch moments, right? Push the clutch in. All of a sudden, it's a bunch of legal code about sacrifices. But I want you to note what it says in verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit. Now, what's striking about that? Do you see? It seems random. All of a sudden, you're in a bunch of legal code. What is this about? Well, he lays out all of these laws about when you come into the land and you're to offer these sacrifices. And these sacrifices are expensive. A lot of animals have to be sacrificed. A lot of grain, a lot of wine. Like, how? They're in the desert right now, right? How are they going to have the 
I mean, this, they have to be wealthy to offer these sacrifices. You see what's happening? Here we have something stuck immediately after the climactic rebellion that says, God's still going to bring you into the land, and He's going to bless you there. And then when you, when you get there, you're to offer these sacrifices. So this, this legal code is meant to be a comfort, to be a testimony to the fact that God will still fulfill His promises, right? So when you look at this material, what you see is, in this part here, all these rebellions, what is being emphasized is that Israel is an evil and unbelieving generation. Uh, this, the Exodus generation. They, they, they manifest their rebellious heart. In this section, you see God justly sentencing the Exodus generation to death in the wilderness for their rebellion, right? Human sin, divine judgment. But, in this chapter, you see testimony to God that God will be faithful to bring the nation into the promised land and to bless them there, just as He had promised, um, even though they are called to fulfill uh, their holy calling. In fact, if you get to the end of chapter 15... You see this strange little piece of legal code. It's all about tassels on the garments. Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments. And it's interesting that as you read through this this, um, regulations on tassels, it seems that these tassels were intended to be a reminder of their holy identity. Verse 40, So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to the Lord, to your God. Somehow these tassels jingling around at the fringes of their garments were to remind them of their holy identity, right? So I will bring you into the nation, into the promised land, but you are to dedicate yourself to me. You are to live holy lives before me. So that's what this... Legal code, it's not random, it's put there for a reason, right? Okay, so let's keep working through this section, chapters 11 through 20. Next, you have more rebellion. Except this time, the rebellion is Korah's rebellion, and it's all about the priesthood. If you read through those stories, you see that there was a group in Israel that was resentful that Aaron and his sons alone could approach the Lord at the tabernacle. And they thought, we're all holy to the Lord, we should all have that right. And Moses says... You know, by this time, you can imagine, you know, Moses' exasperation. He says, fine. You want to see? We'll settle this once and for all. You come tomorrow, and you bring a priest censer, and you stand before the tabernacle, and you hold that priest censer, and we'll see. Aaron will come too, and he'll have his priest censer, and we'll see. We'll let the Lord tell us who can approach him. And you remember the story, right? The Lord caused the ground to open up before the rebels, Korah and his company, and swallowed them alive down into the ground. And then in the next chapter, we see that God performs a sign. He, take, he says each of the tribes of Israel is to take a, a stick and put it in, in uh, the tent of meeting. And in the morning, I'll show you which tribe has the right to be priests. And it says that Aaron's stick... Uh, blossomed, produced ripe almonds overnight. And that stick was kept in the Ark of the Covenant as a perpetual reminder that God's appointed priests alone could approach Him at His temple. And so this rebellion is all about the fact that God 
would be approached only by his priests. And as the judgments fell, what was interesting is that the very, the people who were rebelling against the unique priesthood of Levi ended up needing Levi, Aaron, to intercede on their behalf, that they would not perish in the judgment. Then you have laws, a series of laws about the duties of the priests and the duties of the Levites in chapter 18. Chapter 19, you have laws about how people would be purified when they became ceremonial and clean. This is the ritual about the, the red heifer would be sacrificed as ashes would be brought outside the camp, mixed with water, dip in hyssop, sprinkle yourself when you became clean, and you had to go through a process of days waiting to re-enter before you could go back into the camp. In chapter 20, and this is where we're drawing to the end of this section, where after you get through chapter 20, you, you begin to get the sense that a new generation in Israel is arising, that the old generation has perished. And at the end of chapter 20, the chapter ends on sort of a very sad note, where it doesn't say explicitly that the previous generation has died. But you have deaths. You have the death of Miriam at the beginning of the chapter. You have the death of Aaron at the end of the chapter. And then you have the rebellion, finally. Miriam and Aaron Aaron had rebelled. The people had rebelled. And now you had the rebellion of Moses himself. When God told him to speak to the rock, and what did he do instead? Struck the rock. And God said, because you've done this, you too will perish outside the promised land. Right. So chapter 20 sort of ends with, on this note here, right? The, the Exodus generation finally all perishing outside the wilderness. So it doesn't mean that Moses and Aaron didn't go to heaven or Miriam didn't go to heaven, but it means that they would not inherit the promised land. Okay, and then what is this all about? Well, here we have an emphasis upon the necessity and the exclusivity of God's appointed priest and how we Israel needed the priest to be saved from the judgment of God. In this chapter here, you have an emphasis upon Israel's, in in the face of all their rebellions, right? Which manifest their uncleanness before a holy God. We have this ritual teaching how they could be clean before God. and, And teaching them that they needed cleansing from their defilement before a holy God. And then finally, in this section, you have sort of the universality of Israel's sin and failure. That no one was exempt from the... Uh, sin that you see throughout this section in the nation of Israel. Okay, so that's that's what uh, the second major section of the book, eleven through twenty. Any questions on this before we move forward? Any questions on this part of the book? Okay, let's go to the next section, Numbers twenty-one through thirty-six. So this takes us through the end of the book, and the emphasis in this section is how the Lord will fulfill His promises to a new generation of Israelites. So, when you get to chapter 22, you know, in the first 10 chapters, they're at Mount Sinai. 11 through 20, they're traveling through the wilderness. And when you get to chapter 22, verse 1, they're camped at the plains of Moab, which is where they're going to be until they leave to begin the conquest in the book of Joshua. So, again, you've, this takes place at a particular camp. And what we have is a new generation now. The old generation has passed off the scene. And you have a foretaste of the conquest. They defeat some Canaanites in this chapter, chapter 21. But you also have some continuity with the old. There's another complaining incident. 
And in fact, this is the incident where God responds to their grumbling by sending you know, poisonous snakes into their midst, right? And then you have the solution that he, he says, okay, lift up a, a bronze serpent, and anyone who looks to the serpent will be saved from dying from the snakes. Now, what is very interesting about this is something happens here that didn't happen before. In this, in fact, let's look here. Numbers 21, it says... Verse 4, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Just a repeated refrain throughout the book. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And you're like, here we go again with the new generation, right? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed, and the Lord fired. Now this is something that had not happened before. A confession of sin, a turning from it. So while you see continuity with this new generation, you also see something different. They sin, yes, they're still sinners, but they repent of their sin, right? So they are their children's, their father's children, their parents' children in some ways, but they're also different. There seems to be a new disposition here. Also, in chapters 22 through 24, all of a sudden you have this strange story with, you know, they're in the plains of Moab, right? Now you can imagine that made the Moabites feel very uncomfortable, right? <laughs> And so the king of Moab devises a plan to get rid of them. He hires a local sorcerer who had been renowned for being able to put curses on someone to put a curse on the nation of Israel. And you know the story. Instead of being able to curse Israel, God intervened. Now, Israel has no idea that this has happened, right? Who knows how they found out? Because this all happened behind the scenes between Balak, the king of Moab, and the sorcerer Balaam. Somehow, God revealed it to them what had happened. But the, the sorcerer Balaam ends up blessing Israel. Every time Balak said to put a curse on him, instead he blessed them. And so what we see is that Israel's camped. They have no idea what's going on. Their enemies are trying to attack them. But God turns the blessing, the curse of their enemy into a blessing. And it's a sign of his protection, right? And then... We have this climactic betrayal of the Lord at a place called Peor, where they engaged in immorality as part of the worship of Baal at this place. And it is this sort of terrible betrayal of the Lord. But in the midst of it, what you see is also a zeal for the Lord arise, particularly in the person of Phineas, and how he takes action to destroy to kill certain rebels, to put them to death. And God sees what he did, and it turns away his wrath, it appeases his wrath, and the people are saved. So once again, we see something of a continuity, but also in the midst of the continuity of sin and rebellion, you see also zeal for the Lord and true faith among some of the certain of the people. Now, in chapter 26, remember I said the first chapter of the book how did it open? A census. a census, right? When you get to chapter 26, you have another census. Except this is a census not of the first generation, but of second generation. the second generation. The generation that would God would bring into 
the nation of Israel. And in fact, we're going to talk about this, but this census becomes very important. I'm going to, I'll explain why in a second. After this, you have the daughters of Zelophehad. I talked about them in the book of Joshua, but this is where we first hear about them. Their father had no sons. They're already looking forward to the promised land and saying, wait a second, my father's portion in Canaan will end up passing out of our family. Lord, can we inherit his portion in Canaan? Now this is already turning the eye of the reader toward the hope, right? Of the fulfillment of God's promise, the inheriting of the promised land, right? Chapter 27, verses 12 through 23, we have the new leader appointed. Again, anticipating that God will bring them into the promised land through all of this arduous, terrible wilderness experience. And then you get to verses chapters 28 through 29, and you have laws for holy days. And this is another incident in which, as the reader's mind is now turning to the land with the daughters of Zelophehad and the appointing of Joshua, and you get to chapters 28 and 29, and it's all about the various offerings that Israel was to offer when they got into the land of Israel. And again, you see abundant food and animals needed for this. And so once again, it's turning your attention to the fact that God is going to bring you in. And and when you do, He will bless you and you will worship Him, right? That's the emphasis here. Now, what is the purpose of these portions of the narrative? Well, first of all, you have a new generation and you see while that they are still sinners... There is now an emphasis upon their willingness to repent and a zeal for the Lord. Next, in the in Balak and Balaam and those oracles, as well as in the census, there is an emphasis placed upon how the Lord has been faithful to protect them through the wilderness, despite their sin, to deliver them from their enemies, to preserve them through the hardships and dangers of the desert, and to bring them into the promised land. Now, I want to do an exercise here to show you how this second census particularly emphasizes this. Obviously, the Balaam oracles are a wonderful you know, testimony to God's protection and provision of Israel, but this census plays a huge role as well. If someone would go and turn to Numbers 1, 46, and be ready to read that. So who would volunteer to read that? Okay, Mom's going to read that one. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go to Numbers... 26, and we're going to look for that same number. What was the result of this census? And we're going to look down in the chapter until we get to verse 51. So, who, Andrew, would you be willing to read Numbers 26, 51? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, the result of the first census, how many people were there in the original generation of Israelites fighting men when they first came out of Egypt and they were at Mount Sinai. What was the number? All those listed were 603,550. Okay. And then Andrew, once 40 years of wilderness wandering, rebellions galore, divine judgment. We get to the end. How many Israelites are there in the new generation that's going to inherit the land? This was a list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Now remember, this isn't the whole nation. It's the fighting man. But do you see the point here? 603,000, 601,000. There has been a total decrease in the fighting men of Israel through all of these hardships of roughly a couple thousand people. 
Now, the point of that is obvious to say, the Lord has preserved the nation, right? That's the same amount of people that came out. He's now bringing in through all of their rebellion and their wickedness and their hardship. He has preserved the nation intact. So he's bringing just the same amount of people in as he brought out of Egypt, right? So it's a testimony to the Lord. It's to warm your heart, all those numbers, (laughs) to the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord to his people. Now, the last section, we're going to have to go through this quickly here. You have laws concerning vows in chapter 30. War against Midian, where the generals report that they didn't suffer a single casualty. Two and a half tribes requesting the Transjordan region that they had conquered in chapter 32. A travelogue tracing every stop from Egypt to the plains of Moab, looking back and seeing all the places where God had brought them. And then boundaries of Canaan described in chapter 34, laws about the cities of Levites and refuge that they would set up in the land in chapter 35, and Zelophehad's daughter's being required to marry within their own clan in 36. That's the last chapter of the book. And what's the point here? Well, laws concerning vows. Again, all of a sudden, they, they're poised to enter the promised land and they stick in here these laws about the importance of people keeping their vows. Now, what would be the emphasis to Israel with that kind of law? It's a reminder of how in God's eyes, it is important that his people be faithful to their commitments. And as they're poised to enter into the promised land, it's an emphasis upon their need to be faithful to their covenant with God, right? He's been faithful to them. They're called to be faithful to him. What about this travel log where it just traces every stop from Egypt to the plains of Moab? Well, as you read that again, it's meant to warm your heart. All the things that had happened, all the judgments and rebellions, and yet here they are. And every stop along the way was meant to testify to your soul of how faithful God had been. And then finally, these, the book ends by turning their hearts toward Canaan. And the fact that, you know, this is the boundary of the land they're going to inherit. This is the cities they're going to set up for the Levites there. The daughters of Zelophehad, how they're going to keep their portion in the land within their clan. So all of this is turning you to the hope of inheriting the promised land. Okay, so that's, that's where we, we got. I'm, but I want to talk about a few things that Numbers teaches. And let's just look at this quickly. Obviously, what is, what's the overall point of Numbers? Well, a few things. It's, it was to teach Israel... That when you, rather than being proud of their, you know, here they are, they've entered into Canaan, they've set up a kingdom, and whatever place they were along the line in Israel's history in reading this book, they were to be reminded of their own sin, and the fact that they were unworthy of the things that they had received from God, that He had given everything that they have to them, despite their sinfulness. Second, it was to remind them that they had received, well, yeah, they had received these, everything that they had received from God as a result of His faithfulness to His promises. It was all of grace, not their own worth. 
And then finally, it taught Israel that God had delivered them, that God delivered them from his own judgment through the mediation of his appointed mediators. First, Moses, who was always interceding for them in the book and, and asking God to relent. And then also the priest. After Korah's rebellion, there's this famous situation where the people had rebelled against God. God's wrath had broken out against them. And Moses tells Aaron, take a censer. Run out into the midst of the people. And he ran out into the midst of the people. And it says he stood between the living and the dead. The plague was sweeping through the people. But where, where Aaron stood making intercession before God as a priest, the plague stopped. And on the other side of him, people survived. And, and these are dramatic portrayals of their need for a mediator, for God's appointed mediator, for one like Moses to intercede for them, for one like Aaron to make atonement for their sin. Now, I put these verses up here because you can see that even as New Covenant Christians, when we look back at this, we go, yeah, it's the same for us, isn't it? Right? Each of these passages in Ephesians, lay it out. We didn't deserve it. We were sinners. And God saved us by His grace. And it was all through the mediation of Jesus Christ. He's the one who has made peace between God and us. Now, I also want to point out this bigger picture here. In the book of Numbers, you see this pattern of redemption out of Egypt, right? Salvation at the Exodus, journeying through the wilderness. It's difficult, full of testing and trials. And it's headed toward entrance into Canaan, the fulfillment of the promise, right? This is the, in this portion of the Pentateuch, you see this pattern. Redemption, pilgrimage, consummation, toward consummation. Well, there is a parallel in the Christian life, isn't there? Salvation through the second exodus, the cross and resurrection. Christian life through this world, difficult, full of trials, through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom of God, heading toward consummation. Entering into the new creation. By the way, both in Canaan and in the new creation, what do we experience? Rest, right? Ding! Rest. (laughs) Now, what I want to suggest is this typological pattern. Um, This pattern in Israel's history foreshadowed and pointed forward to this pattern that we are experiencing now and that the New Testament writers actually grasped this. It is interesting. There's two passages, 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to have to leave you to read through these passages. But I would encourage you, read through these passages and see how the experience of the Israelites is sort of put as an overlay upon the life of Christians. And and the experience of Israelites in the desert is set there as a, a warning to us. You too are going through a wilderness life and heading toward the promised land. But don't don't harden your hearts in unbelief and fall away or you will not enter uh, that glory. In fact, let me just read to you this one little section. Um, It'll take a couple minutes. And I I want you to just hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to Exodus. The rest of the references are going to be to Numbers. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, and then he says, Therefore let anyone who, takes, who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he explains, no temptation is overtaking you. That's not common demand. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what your ability, your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a life of testing. Like Israel came through the Red Sea and ate the manna and the water. So you have come through redemption to participate in the cup and the bread. But... That doesn't guarantee your salvation, right? He's saying, remember them. Remember how they perished outside the desert, in in the desert because of their unbelief and their idolatry. He's saying, learn from their example and endure the testing so that you may take hold of salvation. Now, his point is not that you can lose your salvation, but his point, he's speaking to people in the church who may have been looking to their, the fact that they had been baptized and taking the Lord's Supper as a guarantee. And he's warning them against unbelief and idolatry. And it's against the background of some in Corinth going down to the idol temples, right? Participating in idolatry. So, the same type of thing is done in Hebrews 3, 7 through four eleven, where he points to the Israelites and through the lens of Psalm 95 and says, may your heart not be hardened in unbelief so that you fall short of the rest of God that lies ahead in the heavenly country. Okay? Real quickly, there are also many other passages in the New Testament that refer to numbers. You could write these down if you want. Each of them are instances in which the gospel or the New Testament writers see references to Christ in the book of Numbers. Very fascinating. I don't have time to go through them right now. And then, of course, Balaam and Korah are repeated sort of patterns where he says, you're going to have enemies like Israel did in Balaam and Korah. So the book of Numbers actually leaves an imprint, a significant imprint on the, Old, on the New Testament, doesn't it? And even points forward to Christ in various ways. You know, most famously in John 3.16, just as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? And all who look to him will be saved. So, all right, let's end there. I've gone over time again, of course, going through entire books of the Bible. Ha, ah, it's hard. <laughs> Pray for me. And also, read Deuteronomy. So this, this week, in your devotions, think about reading through the book of Deuteronomy. You know, take it in whatever, a few chapters a day and night. It's a long book, you know. Five in the morning, five at night, get through it. Get through it this week so that when we come next week, you're ready to dive into that book. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just our time in the book of Numbers. I hope and pray, Lord, that you would use this class to really deepen our collective understanding of this book in the Bible. And 
not only what it taught to its original readers, the Israelites, but how it fits into the larger storyline of Scripture and how it points us to Jesus Christ so that we might, Lord, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, that we might learn from the example as was written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And Father, we pray that this would lead us, stir up within us a greater faith and a greater trust in you, a greater awe and reverence for you and a love for you, given your steadfast love and faithfulness to us, despite our sin, like, the, like as with the Israelites. So we praise you. We thank you for our time together. We pray that it would be a blessing to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.